I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at RAINNetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the RAIN Insights Podcast. This podcast is part of the RAIN Insights series, comprised of both virtual and real-world events, offering unique practical perspectives from RAIN's leading experts in risk management. From webinars and podcasts to in-person roundtables and summits, these events provide timely support to business leaders from across all industries, giving them actionable strategies and direct knowledge on emerging risk issues from some of the world's top experts in their fields. In this episode, Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with Ben Coleman, co-founder and CEO of Reality Defender. Ben, uh, first, uh, it's a great honor to have you and to talk about your most recent venture. And uh, this is a reconnection from our days at uh, Goldman. And it would be um, terrific maybe if you just talk about your background, your journey, and let's launch into a very, very important topic, which is um, the role of artificial intelligence technology in the creation of uh, deep fake visuals and audios. Perfect. David, thank you so much for, for having me. This is absolutely the number one challenge and, and, and risk uh, facing, I think, every generation. Uh, on a personal level, my background is the intersection of cybersecurity and, and data science. Um, David, as, as, as you know, we, we used to work together. I was in a much more junior capacity uh, than you at Goldman Sachs. Um, I worked for uh, then CISO Phil Venables, thinking about uh, investing in and commercializing all things solving cybersecurity, privacy, and, and fraud issues. Uh, in a previous life, I've also done research for the Department of Defense and DARPA, and spent some time at Google as, uh, as well. And um, as we think about um, the discussion at hand, uh, I think it'd be helpful if you could, there's a term that has floated out there, the uh, term is deep fakes. Uh, I'm not sure who coined the expression in some respects, I think it's a uh, maybe inappropriate, but maybe you could define you know, what is being created out there and what, you know, falls within the uh, penumbra of a deep fake? That's a, that's a great question. So in the classical sense, uh, deep fakes uh, are on the edge of a spectrum. Uh, thinking about deep fakes as the most technologically complex manipulation or recreation of a person. So either creating something from scratch that has never been seen before, or taking an existing video or audio or document of, of you, David, and manipulating it to uh, change uh, the narrative or, or the use case. On the spectrum, we have deepfakes at the most extreme. These require sufficient amount of computational power, uh, typically cloud compute, to generate. At a lower level, you have things that are called cheap fakes, which are things that average people can create either on the local machines or using different services online. At the furthest extreme, uh, they're more just traditional post-processing or Photoshop-type fraud, things you can do locally on your machine to manipulate an image or cut or crop uh, audio or, or, or video. Um, part of the 
the challenge here is that we have a few dueling narratives uh, demonstrating how this problem is growing exponentially month over month. On, on one hand, uh, anyone who's technical can download free code online on GitHub or look on Stack Overflow or just Google for it and spin up uh, dangerous or entertaining methodologies to manipulate their faces. For example, remove them all, change the shape of your chin, add a, a tan during wintertime, or the thing is a lot more inappropriate. Uh, spoof someone's voice to do wire transfer fraud or take somebody's photo from LinkedIn and put them in a very compromising position. Uh, on the other side, you have cloud compute, which anyone can buy online. Uh, now, it is expensive, so one of the challenges we have is as it gets less and less expensive, it gets more and more open to average people. Uh, you might all remember the Tom Cruise deepfake that uh, looked incredible. It was almost uh, as if Star Wars team uh, special effects experts built it, and it was very much in that respect. It took them months to create uh, a team of people using a lot of cloud compute. What we're seeing is, is that technology gets more available and downloadable and computational power gets less expensive uh, to everybody. This is growing uh, you know, double-digit percentages month over month. And I'll challenge anybody who's listening to just go on Google and type in uh, synthetic voice creator or voice duplicator. And they'll see tens of thousands of platforms that you can pay by the minute to try and create from scratch or recreate somebody's somebody's voice. And up until a few months ago, using a few minutes of David of your voice on this, this podcast, I can create a, a pretty great voice match um, to spoof uh, your bank account or your credit card provider or uh, your, 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 your airline provider and try and hack your account. In the last month, it's gotten even worse. Um, with new models coming out of Microsoft and, and others, you can recreate your voice with less than 10 seconds of somebody's voice. So this this challenge and this opportunity for criminals, whereas before they would only be able to hack or spoof one person at a time using more traditional social engineering attacks, they can now do programmatically with not that much new expertise in, in programming and coding. Um, they can download tools, they can pay for them online, and they can take data that's on the dark web of our names, our birthdays, different identifiable information, and try and attack thousands of people at the same time. And they only have to get one right to take money from a company or a person. Um, just in the last week, there have been two voice fraud deepfakes that have hit the news, and many that have not hit the news, but these two were double-digit million-dollar scams where somebody impersonated a company CEO and called somebody and said it was an emergency. We needed to wire money. And that person checked, and it looked pretty new and normal. The email was correct. The voice sounded correct. And they did it, only to realize that the CEO was traveling or unavailable, and somebody would take advantage of, of that to execute uh, what previously was a pretty simple scam, now being done a lot more accurately and technically in higher scale using voice, um, synthetic voice uh, creation tools. So Ben, um, just apropos our past discussions, you know, I've always found it helpful um, 
written with various people and as we speak, uh, not to get bogged down um, in thinking this is a technology problem uh, because the threats that you're referencing actually, I, I like to say, and, and it's true with cyber in general, actually go back to the days of the Bible, okay, in terms of fraud, impersonation, disinformation, uh, we'll call it sabotage, etc. And for the people in the audience, um, there, let me give you two, I'll call them analog examples, Ben. Um, if people recall the movie Forrest Gump, uh, it's worth watching because there are several very amusing and entertaining scenes where Tom Hanks, uh, I believe, plays ping pong in China, uh, meets President Nixon, uh, has a conversation with President Johnson and a few other uh, celebrity moments. Um, I think they... Uh, Tom Hanks is also seen speaking on the uh, steps of the Lincoln Memorial with a massive crowd, uh, I guess from the Vietnam protest days. And uh, that was Hollywood. It was entertaining. Uh, I also recall many, many years ago, because uh, I studied this back in college, um, as part of the propaganda efforts of uh, then... Uh, the People's Republic of China they had uh, I think there were rumors that Mao was ill uh, but they had him s swimming the Yangtze River and um, people in the intelligence community analyzed the pictures very carefully and they were able to discern that it was a you know we'll call it early opportunity to photoshop and you know I think it's, they, they actually were able to find the space where his neck was not connecting with the water of the Yangtze but basically, uh, what you are describing now is a continuation of the spectrum of disinformation, impersonation, fraud, and uh, what I'll refer to as the scalability of those types of efforts, whether it's for propaganda purposes, fraud purposes, to embarrass people, maybe for political advantage. I think we, you know, in a few election cycles, we've already seen how uh, some videos can be doctored to make somebody look like either they're ill or they're impaired due to alcohol or some kind of medical uh, infirmment. Is that a, sort of just, just to level set this, is that a, a good way to understand what we're dealing with now? Is that because of technology, all of these types of efforts have now increased in their sophistication, increased in their ability to persuade people about reality and the truth. And now because of the availability of these tools, they not only are, you know, these efforts have become that much more ubiquitous, uh, but also that they have scaled and they've scaled past our current uh, abilities to confirm and secure and to protect. I, I think that is a that is a, that is a great analogy. Um, I'd also say it's, it, it absolutely follows the growth and maturity of uh, antivirus uh, software and viruses in general. And 
the, those of you old enough, you'll remember uh, in the early 90s, uh, all the companies said they'd solved viruses uh, forever, and obviously they haven't. It's always been a cat and mouse game. And, and just to be clear, you're talking about software viruses here. Computer viruses as well. Uh, it's absolutely a cat and mouse game. And anyone who uh, works in a large company um, remembers initially you pick the files you wanted to scan. Then 10 years later, you pick the time you wanted to scan them because it took over your computer. And now it's all scanned all the time. You only even know it's happening when your company or your Outlook or Gmail says, uh, we block this file because there's a, a virus inside the uh, the attachment. With with deepfakes and generative AI, we're absolutely in the first inning of what is a, a multi-decade expansion of maturity. The only difference is is that computer viruses took uh, a few decades to become truly ubiquitous and dangerous, and uh, it's happening within our space and. You know, in months, not uh, not years, and so we, we we don't suspect this will slow down any time soon. And one of the biggest challenges for us is not only building technology, but in educating the market and regulators and consumers and my uh, and my my mother to uh, to be careful in the face of something that is uh, new and novel. But to your point, it's also not new. It's just being done in a much more um, diligent and, and dangerous way um, versus some of the more traditional technologies you mentioned, Forrest Gump, or just older school confidence type scams, which are just a person calling and trying to get you to do something that you wouldn't do if you knew the full story. So um, you, you aptly named um, the company you started Reality Defender. Um, it may have been too presumptuous, but I actually think of your efforts more as uh, uh, might fall under the corporate umbrella of truth defender uh, because of the fact that what I think where, where your efforts are derived, particularly at this inflection point, where people are more distrustful of institutions the term fake news is now ubiquitous and people are getting their information and um, forming their opinions from, you know, I'll call it a, a, a balkanized world of sources. And I don't want to, you know, date myself too much, but uh, I remember many years ago and I reread it a few years back, um, Marshall McLuhan's book, um, and we're you know the you know the, uh, the medium was the message, and he spoke about uh, at the time then um, the advent of television and the advent of news being broadcast at seven p.m. around the time that most families were having dinner, and of course in those days there were basically three networks. Uh, ABC, CBS, NBC. And he was opining that it wasn't so much that people could watch the news during dinner time, but he was thinking about the impact that television as a medium was having at that particular hour and with that particular content. 
and we're obviously far along from that. And my sense here, and I always like to ask um, four W's. Uh, I have four questions that begin with the W. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? With whom are you doing it? And why now? And so I'd like to unpack that with you because uh, you should explain. Uh, it would be helpful to the audience to understand exactly what reality, or if I can call you truth defender, is doing. And why now? And sort of to unpack what I'll refer to as where the risks or threats are from a obviously you, you've referenced financial fraud but there's something far more important which is you know the notion of where people are going to get their information and what information they're going to believe and what information they're going to act upon and what information they're going to vote upon etc reputationally uh, in terms of how organizations and people may have to protect their reputations going forward and obviously you know beyond the finances uh, legally, there are significant issues which our laws are not yet ready to address. So let me just give you the floor and, and maybe you can unpack this for the audience. Of course. Touching on your, your first point about um, Marshall McLuhan, uh, his, his book, an interesting title, Understanding Media, The Extensions of, of Man. And I think the, the real interesting point there is that the, the medium of the media um, changes how the message is actually perceived by the, uh, the audience. And, and right now, rightfully or wrongfully, uh, we individually are becoming the medium ourselves. And uh, because of that, it increases in the risk and the, um, the bullhorn of what we're saying, and speaking particularly around social media. Um, I think that is an incredible opportunity, but it's also an incredible risk when you don't know who and what and where and why you're seeing what you're seeing. We hope to solve um, part of that. Now, we're solving at Reality Defender, as you call it, Truth Defender. We're solving um, if something is potentially uh, manipulated or generated. What we're not doing is analyzing um, the who or the why it is, it is happening in the first place. Now, part of that reason is we don't want to touch any PII data. We want our users and clients, uh, including governments, social platforms, marketplaces, banks, identifying identity fraud. We want them to know that we are not seeing, touching, or potentially losing any of their uh, customers or proprietary data. All we're doing is scanning the images, the video, the audio, the documents, the text, and giving a risk score on the uh, indicative nature of potential fakeness or manipulation. Um, and so with that said, uh, uh, the question you asked also is why we're doing it. Um, initially, we're doing it to see if it could be done. Um, we realized very quickly that no single company or team or even algorithm can solve for deepfakes or generative AI detection. And so while we're building our own proprietary models that we provide to our customers, we also partner with dozens of research institutions, individual applied research 
persons, and also companies like Microsoft and Intel, who publicly announced their collaboration with us, because they built their own model and realized similarly that a single model can never solve this. So you know, coming from my time at Goldman Sachs, always thinking about industry consortia approaches to solving problems that are affecting entire industries or, or populations, uh, we're giving away a lot of our IP, our models, our data sets, trying to encourage the next generation to think about solving this issue and then providing a single uh, dashboard experience and also an API for our clients and our government users and our uh, unpaid users, which we give away our solution to different groups who can't afford it, to get access to all these things in one simple, easy-to-use platform. Uh, either they can get raw data if they are technically minded, but also if they're a junior risk or fraud or compliance professional, they could simply upload media into our website and get a report that is color-coded to give immediate insights on the confidence levels and severity of the potential fraud itself. I, I hope that answers your question. Did I, did I miss anything? Yeah, it did. And, and I want to emphasize a few things for the audience, which is um, you have taken what I'll refer to as a, uh, I'll, I'll refer to it almost as building a Unitarian uh, church around this problem in that you recognize uh, no one person, no one entity, no one company has the answer. You have to constantly be bringing, and bringing in partners and partnering with other people to um, provide a platform that can begin to give insights and solutions. And uh, that recognition, I think, is fundamental to you know, responding effectively to this problem, but has been fundamental to your business uh, thus far. And I think it's important for people to understand that. Uh, this is a very complex issue and with a variety of threat vectors, and it's only going to be effectively addressed on a cooperative basis. Is that a fair s summary, Ben? Absolutely. Uh, I think there's a tremendous opportunity for organizations to collaborate uh, in this space, but also larger uh, around cybersecurity and, and fraud. Uh, I think there's a there's always the concern of not wanting to broadcast when there is a potential breach, but uh, adversaries and bad actors and state-level hackers only need to be right once, and they're typically using the same tools to attack all of us and all companies uh, in real time at the same time. And so anything that companies can do to feel more comfortable not only understanding the problem, but also sharing uh, their learnings and the threats they face with others uh, just better protects consumers everywhere. And we're trying to help with that by providing tools for our clients to share what they find on our platform. But obviously, it's it's up to the organizations themselves to develop their own um, comfort level and sharing what are called indicators of compromise. I, I didn't want to lose the thread of something you just said, which um, in this game of creating deep fakes where voices, images, actions can be easily um, created and people and organizations can be impersonated, uh, news events, worldwide events 
can appear to be taking place when in fact they're not. That the actors don't have to be right all the time, they only have to be right once. And because of the ubiquitous nature, and I'll, I'll call them, you know, I'll say the low barriers of entry to the technology and the scalability, um, it, 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 you know, you win by just being right once, every once in a while. Okay, the act—that's all the actors need. So unlike uh, baseball, where you at least have to maybe bat 300 plus to win the batting title. Those percentages uh, are irrelevant to these actors, and uh, it's important for the audience to know. It only takes, they can try thousands of times to defraud a bank, they only have to be right once. Um, I just want to make sure I heard that correctly as well, Ben. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we need everybody to not only understand the problem, but think about this all the time. Um, the same way in your pocket, your phone controls your whole life. And if you lose that, you lose access to things everywhere. Um, similarly, all the data you put online, whether it's your face or others, can potentially be used in nefarious ways. And so speaking of having two small children under the age of, uh, of six, I'm thinking about them um, ensuring that they have an understanding from uh, childhood and how to protect themselves online, but more importantly, protect their own information uh, from an adversary who will programmatically uh, have them on a list of a million people and try and hack all of them all the time uh, on an ongoing manner. So grateful um, that you mentioned, I'll call it the uh, second part of McLuhan's book and the extension of, of man uh, because um, what we're witnessing, and i just go back to the original point we were discussing, is that this is human activity in full bloom, okay? What's happening here as technology develops. And when you think about, I'll call it, not just what's happening and you're seeing it now, Ben, but the horizon. Uh, I'm understanding the work of Reality Defender to be uh, addressing a variety of scenarios. So you referenced the voice impersonation um, and the transfer of money, but the ability to create uh, video footage where a CEO appears to be saying something or where uh, a group of people are protesting a particular business activity or the um, consumer outrage around the product. I, and, I, and I just, you know, I, I go back to some of the things that companies have had to deal with. Um, I think it was Procter & Gamble. Um, I forget what their actual insignia was on boxes, but uh, this is all before, you know, the viral days or the truly viral days of the Internet, but that, you know, it was in fact a devil's sign. Um, and, you know, companies constantly have to deal with rumors that their hamburgers are, you know, contain horse meat or whatever. But can you maybe give a sense of what you're starting to see and if a company were going to try to think about this proactively ahead of the issues, how they should be thinking about 
deep fake technology, whether it's audio, visual, or a combination thereof? Yeah, I think there's a there's a term within cybersecurity called zero trust, and I think that it embodies how you know even non-technical people within companies should think about things. Um, by default, you should not trust any material or any phone call you receive, even if it says uh, the CEO's name and it matches the the phone number. Uh, anything that involves potential monetary or reputational considerations should be further verified uh, in multiple ways. And there's a number of technology components and can solve for this, but a lot of times it's the biggest challenge is, is just solving human nature. And so on our side, you know, a few examples of how we support our clients. Um, you know, we, we help NATO, NATO itself, uh, scan geopolitical disinformation. I could share this because they talk about it publicly. Um, we help banks scan real-time voice communications coming into call centers and also the push for BYOD, people using their personal phones for work and perhaps not knowing that the person they're speaking to is not their client. Uh, we also help social media platforms scan uploaded media uh, before it's seen for potential nefarious uh, manipulation. And everything in between, you know, we, we try and do a lot of things proactively, scan the internet and then notifying clients when we find things. Um, uh, but the, the world is getting a lot larger and, and more connected. And as emerging types of uh, communication or messaging or social networking expand, uh, it creates a new arena for bad actors to influence uh, people's opinions or actions or uh, generate new opportunities for fraud. So we're looking to be on the forefront of that to both identify known technologies and techniques to create deep fix, but also to create deep fix ourselves internally so that we can identify things uh, even before they've been found in the uh, public arena. So what you've described, I'll, I'll call it, you know, is one half of the equation. Uh, institutions, zero trust in terms of their interactions online, um, requests that are made around, you know, what I'll refer to as various uh, transactions, incoming inbound calls, in, inbound um, messaging. But I'd, I'd also like to maybe expand um, and in some ways underscore the significance of what I, I understand to be the threat here, which is this is coming at a time, Ben, where people have, the public, has you know documented growing and already significant levels of distrust around institutions and the information that they put out around the news media, around uh, political leaders, uh, around uh, leading corporations. And so it, it feels as though, you know, the environment is particularly, if I can use this term, particularly fertile receptive to this kind of technology and having this kind of technology persuade large swaths of people uh, either you know around their political views, their consumer choices, um, their general feelings of 
I'll call it safety and security. And maybe you could talk about that and, and just sort of how Reality Defender and other entities need to be or are addressing this and, and may need to address these very important points uh, in the future. Yeah, th thanks for that comment. I think what you're saying is the ideal world we hope to live in. Uh, unfortunately, uh, most organizations do not understand the problem uh, unless you're uh, a bank facing direct P&L risk of, of fraud or a government facing uh, defense considerations for misinformation. Uh, you're not thinking about this as a real threat because you typically have not felt that you've faced it in a, in a, very, in a very personal way. Uh, and that speaks to regulators' opportunity to really require companies to think about and scan and flag potentially synthetic media. Um, currently in Taiwan and South Korea and Japan and Singapore, uh, they have new laws requiring media organizations and social networking platforms to flag synthetic media. And then it's up to the users to decide if they want to see it or, or not. Very similar to uh, potential uh, violent imagery uh, or nudity. Um, in the US, we're great at flagging what are called CSAM uh, assets that involve uh, underage persons online. Uh, I would argue that deepfakes and synthetic media should be flagged in much the same way, but it's not going to come from industry. It's going to be requiring regulators to directly put a line in the sand and require companies to do something in, at scale, as opposed to what they do right now, and um, calling out, you know, pick your favorite social media platform. They do the bare minimum. They have human content moderators who only see horrible things all day and are not qualified to actually identify fraudulent media. And even if they were, they'd only see it once it's been flagged by you or I. So these platforms require us, the user, to become experts and right-click and flag it for somebody to review. Uh, and again, humans cannot identify fraudulent media at scale. Uh, even I can't do it. No one on our team can do it because the fraud is so lifelike and only getting better. And so I'll reiterate that there's an opportunity for U.S. regulators to really spearhead a global effort to require organizations and platforms to think about this issue, whereas right now we're a year or two behind other organizations, sorry, other countries that are already requiring things since last year in Asia. Uh, European Commission started this year, and U.S., uh, we hope to see something next year. So it's interesting. Um, when you say you require companies to think about, I know you're being very politic here. Uh, one of the um, tropes that I personally rail against is when uh, people say we need to have a conversation about this. And, and my feeling is, no, we once upon a time did need to have that conversation. Now we need to have a conversation plus an action plan. And that's what I'm really hearing you say, Ben. Is that fair? That's right. And there's a potential carrot approach or a stick approach. Uh, much like GDPR and CCPA really jump-started uh, industry focus on, on different areas, uh, that may be the only approach that uh, will get industry to start thinking about this, and that's to uh, actually provide 
monetary fines for organizations and platforms that do nothing. Um, so let, let me, let me uh, pull on that thread a little bit because um, similar to cyber world, uh, the, um, these platforms are in essence being victimized themselves, right? There are organizations or state-sponsored actors or people who are abusing the rights of these platforms and doing this and, and um, you know, the burden thus far has fallen on those platforms to defend themselves, okay, and to root out um, this type of, you know, technology. Uh, you may be aware uh, the Justice Department has a, uh, once again, re-announced, it, it's not new, this notion that companies have an obligation to root out fraud and criminal activity and report it. Uh, there's something in the UK called the duty to prevent. Uh, and what I'm not yet seeing are the law enforcement treaties that we have in other areas for cooperation across borders and for severe penalties for the people who create these things and post these things. And I'm just curious whether you've been plugged into any efforts along those lines. We, we've been trying to spearhead these efforts. We spent a lot of time with um, with different government groups trying to educate them on the problem. We actually try and scare them and and, and really make it personal by deepfaking themselves. Uh, I'm thinking of a recent meeting at the Federal Reserve where we we uh, uh, demonstrated a deepfake of a very senior person. We're told uh, not only not to show that, but um, wow, that's actually really scary. It's market moving. Uh, so we, we, we absolutely want to encourage uh, thought leadership and uh, decision-making in, in the space where currently there is, is, is not a lot. Um, but, uh, but beyond that, we, um, we're a, a small team. Uh, we provide a lot of material and content online um, and try and provide tools for others like yourself to then evangelize the, uh, the challenge and potential ways to increase and accelerate adoption. And I'll, I guess I'll just, just leave with one, with one uh, example just to make it very apparent to the audience how, 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 how huge and challenging this is a problem, but also how limited right now platforms are to solving it. If you go on uh, uh, Facebook or LinkedIn or uh, dating platforms like Match.com, uh, it takes you between 7 and 10 steps as a consumer to just flag something as potentially manipulated or fake, only then does it get routed to a uh, human uh, content moderator. And uh, I can tell from personal experience, um, we put a deepfake on these platforms. Uh, the deepfake communicates with people, applies for jobs, uh, requests dates. Um, even when we flag our own deepfake on the platforms, uh, still nothing happens. Uh, our software could identify these deepfakes north of 95% of the time. But because these platforms are not required to programmatically scan for this, uh, unlike CSAM data, uh, you know, images of underage or violence, which they, they do programmatically, but with deepfakes, uh, they're just not doing anything yet. We would encourage anyone listening who works within organizations that share, broadcast, uh, or store 
any kind of concern media uh, to really wake up because the threat is here. It's already happening. And before long, it will be too late for the platforms to uh, solve the issue at scale. All right. Well, you're touching upon uh, a favorite theme of mine. Uh, why does it take a crisis uh, to get people to focus on a problem? And, you know, uh, I'm not drawing parallels, Ben, but, you know, we've gone through the pandemic, the financial crisis, 9-11, and, you know, we're dealing with... Uh, the threats of climate change right now. Uh, and uh, I, I once asked uh, a very, very uh, politically astute um, senior member of uh, the Intel community and uh, somebody who has been involved in several administrations um, at the risk of being naive, why does it take a crisis? And uh, the answer was because it's Washington, David. It's Washington. Um, and, and he was explaining, look, it's, there are a lot of priorities and, and things. But what I've seen of the technology is I can easily imagine it swinging an election. We've gone through several presidential cycles, for example, where the narrowest margins in just a few districts have swung the electoral votes. It's caused a great deal of dissension, questions about the legitimacy of elections, questions about, you know, sort of whether even the electoral system is a fair process. I mean, it goes on and on. And I'm, I'm just hoping, and uh, I appreciate you saying evangelizing, uh, I think it's actually proselytizing, Ben, about this. Uh, it's not just you know, preaching about this, but, you know, convincing people that this is something we need to get ahead of uh, because of where it's going. And particularly, I would argue at this time where, you know, there is such a level of <clears throat> distrust where conspiracy theories are very often the currency of the realm and where uh, political leaders are constantly struggling to maintain credibility um, with the people. You know, I don't want to say, you know, democracy's at risk. I, I, you know, people are saying all these things, but very often, you know, the foundation here is a common ground of what is the truth and what can be understood to be the truth and what is authentic and who can be trusted. Uh, you lose that and uh, you lose a very, very significant part of the fabric that holds us together. So a long-winded way of saying uh, not only thank you for your efforts, but I want to continue this conversation, and I'm going to ask um, as part of the podcast here, uh, we'll also maybe post uh, some examples uh, through our website of uh, what a deep fake looks like. And uh, I'm not sure if you have one uh, involving Jay Powell that talks about uh, interest rates in 2023, moving up another, you know, 500 basis points, or, or one that ex where he expects that the uh, interest rates will go down to two percentage points. But you can easily imagine how uh, a, a video like that could move markets. To your point about manipulation. 
Absolutely. We have a number of examples and case studies. We'll be happy to share them with you and with your with your audience. And thank you so much for letting us talk about what we think is the number one risk affecting everybody listening. Yeah, I would say a, a number one risk among uh, probably five or ten that I can cite to, but nothing that you know is less important. So. Again, thank you, Ben, for the time and uh, look forward to continuing to work with you. And I guess the takeaway here, it's uh, no longer just about Tom Hanks uh, playing ping pong in China. <laughs> that, that, that is true. Uh, well, D David, thank you so much for, for the opportunity to speak today. Um, and thank you, everybody, for, for listening. Well, I'm going to also thank you. This is uh, while you are involved uh, in a private sector enterprise, very much you are um, doing a great and important public service. So thanks for the continued work, Matt. This is the Rain Insights podcast, which is part of the Rain Insights series, comprised of both virtual and real-world events, offering unique, practical perspectives from Rain's leading experts in risk management. To learn more, please visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>